Lord, on this beautiful night where we are gathered together to know you better, our hearts and our minds could be in so many places. And to be honest, even at one time, and we don't want that. What we really want is to, to know you better, to want you more, to allow you to com- so consume us that everything about us would disappear and that you would become everything. And so I just pray tonight, especially when we deal with things that are, are familiar, uh, even for, for anyone who was raised in the church, chances are this chapter, at least the subject matter, would be somewhat familiar. I just pray that you would shine fresh light on us in such a way that, that we would get it as adults. And that we would understand so much more than a story, but how that applies to our lives, individually as people, but also corporately as Christians. And also, Lord, we just pray that you would do a magnificent work here now. That you would, by your power of your Holy Spirit, speak to each one of us, speak a word that we so need to hear. I know we can get so caught up in serving that we can become the Martha without recognizing we've sort of left the Mary behind and... We want to sit at your feet and we want to just tell you we love you and to hear from you. So do that tonight, I pray. Have your way now in Jesus' name. May your word burst open and come alive. And may we be captivated in every minute of it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to say tonight, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. We are now roughly again about a thousand B.C. And as we're a thousand B.C., we are now seeing uh, the situation where uh, a man that had been, again, Israel asking for a king. And they said, give us a king that we would be like all the other nations. We're tired of being weird. We're tired of, of looking odd compared to the rest of the world around us. Now, this is the very thing God had warned them of back in the book of Deuteronomy before they even took the promised land. And they, and they said, why? They want a king that would go before them, that would judge them, go before them and fight their battles. And so God goes and finds a king that would be like a king one would find in any other nation, where everything is on the outside. Man looks at the outer appearance. It's, the, it's God who looks at the heart, the levav, the inside. And so they, they pick a guy that, and, and understand this is context for where we're at, they, they pick a man that would make sense, the largest man they can find, that also is good looking. So he doesn't just look like a brute beast. He actually is a great looking guy, and he's tall, and he just looks great on a pound note. He's somebody that would well represent them, and it's the kind of person that you want to make sure is in your club. And, and again, he's, a, he's head and shoulders taller than everyone else. So for the average Jewish man of the day, he's roughly five and a half feet tall. That puts him roughly nearly about six and a half to seven feet tall, which is basically the average height of a basketball player today. Now, I don't know if you've, I mean, you watch them on TV, you don't really see how big they are, and then you stand next to them and you realize that even for me, that's somebody that's at least another head taller than I am. Now, that would be a good guy when you think, well, he's going to be bigger than anyone that we're going to, uh, anyone that we have to fight. And I remind you, when they were about to take the land, even all the way back in the book of Numbers 13 and 14, they made clear that they looked at the, the people who dwelt in the land of Canaan, that we call the land of Israel. And as they, as they looked at the people, they said, we're like grasshoppers in comparison to these guys. These guys are giants. And when we think of giants, we, of course, just think of just somebody larger than ourselves. 
Well, now here we are at a place where God has handed him his P-45. He has now been fired. Saul's heart has manifest. Though he has this tremendous calling, he has no consecration. And it's really sad to watch a person who has such a phenomenal calling on his life. But really, that's the part that God does. But the part that's his choice is whether his heart's to be set apart unto God in that calling. And there are people, and you watch them, and God does magnificent things through them, and you wonder, how could that person live such an opposite lifestyle to the very thing they preach, and then sooner or later they get nailed for it? And of course it hits the news, because everybody loves to talk about a fallen preacher. And we rub our shoulders and go, no, I don't, I don't get it. How in the world does somebody like that have such a, I mean, have, have such great fruit, but live such a weird alternative life to that and understand because God's calling well that's God's job and in his brilliant and perfect wisdom he knows who to put and when even knowing that they would make those choices but the choice we have is whether or not we're going to go and let God set apart our hearts in that calling well Saul never does that and as Saul has been fired Saul has no interest in stepping off the throne And God has made clear now, he says, on two different occasions now, the first when Saul then offers a sacrifice that is not within his pay grade, if you will, to do. And God says, you've lost your legacy. I have found a man who is after my own heart. By the second time, when Saul spears what God told him not to, God says, I have found a man better than you. And if you were Saul, if I were Saul, I would be looking from that point on. I'd be looking for who this guy is that's to be my replacement. And the two things that I know, other than that he's a neighbor, which assumed then that he's from a tribe outside of mine. He's from uh, Saul's from Benjamin, the outside tribe. The next, the neighboring community is Judah. So I'm looking for a Judean person who uh, is going to be a man after God's own heart. That's what I'm looking for. And I'm looking for somebody then, a man, God says, that's better than me. And up to this point now, what we read then is the spirit of God that had been empowering Saul now has been removed. And Saul is now miserable. He is tormented in spirit. And as he is, they call for a man to go and play music for him. And that was where we were last week. And that young man is David. By the way, which means beloved. And and then David, he shows up, and as he does, he's a person who's going to play music, but his dad sends him with a couple gifts. And it's important to note again what they were. They were goat, there was a young goat, it was bread, and a skin of wine. And the only reason that that is at least completely, you know, uh, accumulative to this, the way that it sort of assimilates into this, is that when Saul was receiving his calling, God gave him these crazy signs to tell him, these things are going to happen on your way to receiving the Holy Spirit that is going to empower you to actually become the king I'm calling you to be. And those things were that he would be, people would approach him and say, the donkeys you were looking for, that you were on this errand in the first place, they've been found, so there's a donkey involved. And then these guys are going to come up to you. One guy's going to have three young goats, another guy's going to have a couple loaves of bread, and another guy's going to have a skin of wine. So imagine when David, and then you're going to go, and some prophets are going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, at, the, at a garrison of the Philistines, are going to be playing music, and as they do, the, whole, the Spirit's going to come upon you. You're going to become a different guy. Now, all of a sudden, David shows up to play music, and on a donkey, of all things, is bread, wine, and a young goat. And I wonder if all of that kind of gathered together in Saul's head. And when David would start to play, Saul would be relieved. But sooner or later, the battle is going to come. And here it is now in chapter 17. 
Verse 1 says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle. And they were gathered together at Soho, which belongs to Judah, and they encamped between Soho and Adzecha in Ephes Damim. Now, that's probably not much to say here, I mean, unless you're really familiar with the territory. And to be honest, even the people who live in Israel aren't necessarily going to be very well endowed to know this information. I mean, the place is make a hedge, fenced or dug about, but the, this place, Ephistamin, actually means an edge of blood. And it's interesting. It's roughly 16 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And if you're familiar at all with Israel, that kind of gives you an idea. That makes us, that puts us west of the Dead Sea, in between the Dead Sea and the Med Sea. Saul and all the men were gathered together, and they encamped at the valley of Elah. Elah means terebinth tree or oak. Uh, it doesn't say Elahot or Elain, which would be then plural. It's like the valley of a single oak tree. And they drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath. Now, Goliath or Goliath, Goliath means to have splendor over or a denuder. In other words, a person who would strip you bare to humiliate you. And we read this about him. His height was six cubits and a span. And I'm sure that just hearing six cubits and a span, you go, wow, six cubits and a span, right then? You're like, well, I just, that blows my mind. I can't believe he's six cubits in a span. And then it tells us a little bit more, and we'll develop that in a moment. It says he had a bronze helmet on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat of mail was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Now, if, if, the, if the whole measurement in regards to his height, six cubits in a span, didn't blow you away, certainly 5,000 shekels of bronze did, right? Yeah, right. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. Do you believe 600 shekels? Dennis? And his shield bearer went before him. Now, we're familiar with it. We just know he's a big guy. He's a big guy. He's obviously, we'll assume he has a heavy chain mail. And he's got a big spear. And that's kind of how we put it. And even if I were to give you dimensions we kind of then start to go, well, okay, so he's just big, right? Well, let's just put it in rough, the idea of it. Now, a cubit's actually a fairly easy measurement. Every one of you has a cubit. If hold up your hand like this, I'm not going to make you swear because that's actually unbiblical anyways. If you hold up that, the measurement between the tip of your elbow and the tip of your farthest finger is called a cubit. We often use the term the fatal cubit because if you put that where your head is, it goes right about where your heart is. And the idea of it is somehow all of the information goes here but doesn't seem to make it the cubit down into your heart. So that's a cubit. The span is the distance here between your, the farthest end of your thumb. Now, I've kind of got a little bit of it. I'm kind of double-jointed, so it goes a little farther. Shaka. But that's, so roughly, the, the easiest way to put it is, is the distance between your elbow and the tip of your finger, to be honest, is roughly about a half a meter. The distance between one side and the other then here, for me, of course, my hands are enormously large, but is roughly six inches. Now, so let's put it in the mind. What that basically means then is that puts this guy roughly between nine and ten and a half feet tall. Or if we could put it this way, three and a third meters. That's how tall he is. And if we were to put him in a proportion, that puts him in that roughly about 662 pounds, which makes him roughly about 300 kilos. Now, that's a big guy, right? 
But you go, okay, big. That's what we get. Well, okay, he's big. And we get a little bit beyond that, again, because when we look at these particular items, it says he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat of mail was 500 shekels of bronze. Now, 500 shekels of bronze is roughly between 156 and 175 pounds, or might I say it this way, it's basically between 70 to 80 kilos. That was the bulletproof vest, or the arrowproof vest that he wore from his neck down to his hips. Now, I'm looking around the room, and I'm going to be honest to say, maybe, maybe Dennis, but besides myself, maybe Dennis, I'm not too sure any of you are heavier than that, to be honest, uh, and certainly none of you ladies. Now, now, what that means is, is that this guy, his, the weight of his vest it was heavier than actually most of you in this room. He could strap you on front of him, and it would be easier for him to run. Think that through. And then we read about his, his uh, spear. We read that he had bronze armor on his legs, and understandably so, because after all, that's the part you're probably going to run into. And he had a bronze javelin between his shoulders, and his staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been in one of those cool, like, you know, hippie communities where everybody weaves and, like, makes everything out of hemp or whatever and blows glass. But the, if you look at a weaver's beam, I mean, to be honest, it is roughly about half the diameter of a railroad tie to give you an idea it's not like the kind of thing that you hang it's you know in your uh you know to sort of hang your clothes on or the kind of thing you might say you got great bow skills it's much larger than that it's actually roughly about the size of let me just put it this way for you Deborah. it's about the size of a salami okay that, that helps right and it tells us a little bit about that weight as well. It tells us that the weight of the iron spearhead was 600 shekels. Now, 600 shekels, by the way, just to kind of give you an idea, is roughly somewhere around 8 to 9 kilos, uh, roughly 19 pounds. That's just the head. And then you have to have the shaft. That's why you need this big old honking thing attached to it, so it needs to be balanced so you can throw it. Otherwise, it just falls on the ground. So you have this thing basically with this giant pole attached to it, which makes the thing roughly about 18 kilos, roughly 40 pounds, roughly 18 kilos in weight. That's the spear. If that thing was blunt on the end of it, you wouldn't want to get hit if somebody chucked that at you. I mean, that's basically like, I mean, you, you could get hit by one of those like Vespas and you'd be better off than getting hit by this thing. But now we have some idea. I mean, we have, okay, so we've, he's got a heavy spear, roughly, again, about 18 kilos. That's just his javelin and he wants to kind of throw through you. And then he's got, I mean, he doesn't say much about his sword here. Uh, and, and then, of course, he's got this helmet. He's kind of, he's kind of duded up. And he's roughly, again, roughly about 9 to 10 and a half feet tall. So, so I get that in, an image in my head, but it still doesn't work for me. So I need to go beyond that. This is the life to scale. Okay, now, this is the guy you're looking at. Just to kind of make... No, let's, let's just do this for a second, because if we're looking at David, and he is roughly the age we're going to see in our story, that puts him roughly at the size of Hugo. Don't miss this. What is Saul's, like, one trade that you would think would give him an advantage in the fight? His height. Right. But here's the problem. Where does... He go on to this. Well, let's just help you here. Let's do this. We add another this. Here, this is Saul. <laughs> that's still really impressive. But that's still nothing compared to this monster. 
And here's the point as you look at this. You guys listen. No matter, God has given every one of you things that propel you. He's given every one of you some kind of gift, some kind of, some kind of function that actually helps you accelerate, that puts you in the front of the queue. Now, that may be social giftings or intellectual giftings or talents of some sort, and maybe just that you're just cute, uh, or you just have this innate ability to grow lots of hair or whatever it is. <laughs> but no matter what it is about you, there's something that you have, and ultimately you can live life skating on these benefits you have. But sooner or later, God in his love for you isn't going to let you skate on that for the rest of your life because if that's the case, you'll never call out to him. So what he has to do is put you in a situation where your best thing doesn't work. And that's exactly where Saul is at this moment. Does that make sense? Okay, go ahead and have a seat. At least that kind of helps you uh, get a reference here. But to remember, he's got actually bronze uh, shin protectors. You can see why. I guarantee you, you slide into this guy on the football pitch, he's not going to roll over. Now, it really makes a difference when you see that, doesn't it? I mean, because I can pitch, okay, he's a big guy in my head, and then I can see some guy. We were at Disneyland once, and there was a seven-foot-tall guy there. That's a tall guy. That's a big guy. Especially when we were going on the Nemo ride, which is a, basically a submarine. It was like the poor guy was shoved into a can. Really sweet. But that was Saul, and it was nothing in comparison to this guy. Now, I remind you, the guy's name means to shame. It means to, uh, to make, in essence, to be, have splendor over, to taunt over. Now, hear me on this. Israel has a history of seeing giants. Again, back in Numbers 13, I believe it's verse 33, there is the situation where they, they compare themselves to the inhabitants of the land, and that's what they see. In Deuteronomy, by the way, God starts to review all of this. But he also reminds them of a king named Og. Now, doesn't that sound like the perfect name for a giant? What's your, what's your name? Og. And he was Og of Bashan. And he was one of the remnant of the giants. In the book of Joshua, chapter 17, verse 15, what we find, by the way, is that when Ephraim wanted more land, they were actually asking for someone to just give it to him. And Joshua pulls their card and he's like, look, you guys think you're so tough. Go down to the, you know, you're living in the mountains. Go down to the valley and go fight. And they're like, but there's giants down there. And he's like, yeah, so what? Now go down there and fight them. In 2 Samuel, what we're going to find is, is that Goliath actually has four brothers. One's name is Ishbi Benov. One's name is Saf. One's name is Lachmi. And the, the sixth, or the fourth guy, we just read as a six-fingered man. He's looking for a six-fingered man. With six fingers on each hand and six toes on every foot. He's so big, it just need, he didn't need another toe. I mean, that's kind of how that works. And so we, and it's just kind of fun to note that. But there's another point in all of this, too, and that they were from a place called Gath. Gath means to press to squeeze. As a matter of fact, the word for olive is the word semnas. So when you put an olive press, what you have is gethsemnas, and we get the word gethsemane from it. So gath means to press, to feel pressure, to crush, to squeeze. A great name for a guy, a guy like this to be. Where are you from? To crush you. I mean, that's where he's from, right? That's what I get. 
Now, I remind you, Saul is supposed to be the guy to fight their battles. We want a king to fight our battles. We want a king to go before us. That's what we're looking for. And this guy steps out. And before that point, it's kind of like the, the kind of the nerd crew that kind of has their bigger guy until he realizes he's only big compared to them. And then all of a sudden they go out into someone infinitely bigger and they're like, whoa, we're nothing compared to this. So here he is and the guy comes and he stands out. And it says in verse 8, Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come up to line up for battle? Come out to line up for battle. Am I not a Philistine? Are you the servants of Saul? Notice he's got, by the way, this guy's name. Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight me and kill me, you you can imagine Goliath thinking, (laughs) like, that's going to happen. Then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. How's that for a deal, guys? The Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now, obviously, he's cheeky for a reason. He's cheeky because he's absolutely confident that nobody can take him down. And for good reason. I mean, which one of us, what do we do? We're going to run into the guy, he sticks out his knee, we're dead. And the word he uses is the word charaf. Charaf, by the way, for defy means, I, I, to be honest, it's often used for the term blaspheme, but I reproach, I taunt, I just, I mock you is the idea. Like a bully would to the kid, he's just about to give a giant atomic wedgie and take his lunch money. And he says, then Saul, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And the word for dismayed, and I'm not going to develop every word, but this one's an important one. It's the word charat, or actually chatrat. And chatrat means to be shattered. We might say he had a breakdown. The guy crumbled in front of everyone. Our biggest man has just fallen apart in front of us. You ever have something like that? You ever see a grown man fall apart on you? I mean, we're not talking about where he just kind of gets a little, you know, cries like a little girl for a second. We're talking about this guy just shattered in front of him. It is important to note that Jesus told us that if we wouldn't just hear his word but do what he says, it would be like a person who built his house on a rock, on the rock. And he says in both cases, be it the rock or the sand, storms will come, rain will come, winds will blow, the floods will rise. But only the one who builds his house on the rock, it will stand. But in the other case, he says it will fall. And he says, and great was its fall. When you watch somebody that's built their life on anything other than Jesus, and there's the difference, though they may have all kinds of verses memorized, though they may be able to give great counsel, and though they may be what appears to be tremendously astute, they may have doctrines and divinity, which I'm still not sure what that means. But in all of that, if they don't build their life on what Jesus says and they just know it, we're back to the fatal cubit, aren't we? And he says there will be a point where you'll have to face your giant. And when you face your giant, your house is going to fall. And when your house falls, great is its fall. I've sat in the houses, in the living rooms, of, in the reception rooms of women whose husbands have left them because they were in a place where they just, things weren't panning out the way they were and they blamed their wife. 
which was very foolish. I've watched guys get crazy and, and try to kill themselves. I've watched pastors that have lost their, their flocks, if you will, and tried to kill themselves because their whole identity was wrapped up in that. And in every case, I hear those words, great was its fall. When you watch the way a child has to look at their father because you have to tell him what he did. Of course, that's never in the fantasy, but it is always in the reality. Praise God, we are going to see now that one, remember, we're looking for someone after God's own heart and somebody that's better than Saul. At this particular moment, it wouldn't have to be much, would it? Because this guy's falling apart in front of us. Verse 12. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite. Ephrathite is, of course, the area of Bethlehem, of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Yeshe. Yeshe, or Jesse, means I possess. Uh, Who had eight sons? Okay, quick question. How many sons does Jesse have? You got that, right? The man was old, (coughs) advanced in years, in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons, and notice how many times he's pointing out the ages, in, in essence, relative age. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of those three sons, the battle with Eliav, the first, next to him, Evinadab, and the third, then Shemach. Now, those names again, for what it's worth, the important thing to recognize is, of these guys that had gone to fight, of the eight sons, how many of them are fighting in the battle? Three. Okay, how many sons does he have? Okay, how many sons are fighting? So how many sons are left? Five. Yes, that's important to recognize. Now, this starts to give me my one age reference to David here. We read, by the way, in Numbers chapter 1, verse 3, God starts, and the reason it's called Numbers is because the people are counted, and you can't count people without Numbers. Yeah, that's it. And they count them twice. In the first case, God wants to counter the fighting men, the people who qualify to fight in the war, people who now are able to fight in the army. And he says in Numbers 1, verse 3, from 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel. Then he will reiterate it again in Numbers 26, 2. So let me get this right. That tells me that the three brothers who are fighting in the, the army have to be what? At least 20 years old. Let's assume, just giving the benefit of the doubt, that how many remain, by the way? Five. That they then are all one year younger than each other. We don't, by the way, read that Jesse has multiple wives. Though, that doesn't mean he doesn't. So if we went down, we went from 20, that means... And by the way, which one is David? Do you remember which one he is? He's the youngest. So we have three of the eight that have qualified. So they're 20 or older, right? 19, 18, 17, 16, 15 years old. Unless a couple were twins, or the case it's fairly likely that David was roughly 15 years old. Hugo, go and stand up there again one more time. Would you do that? Hugo's not just this big to Goliath. Hugo's also 15 years old. You know what that means? He hasn't grown into his feet yet. Right? Does that help? Thank you. Thank you, Hugo. Now, get this. That means his voice is probably still cracking. He can't drive. Right, supplies the way, Mom. David, we read now. It says the three oldest sons had gone to follow. 
We read in verse 14, David was the youngest, the three oldest followed Saul. God wants to let us know this kid was a teenager. He couldn't have been not a teenager unless he was younger. Because the moment you leave your teens, you're old enough to fight, right? 20 is the last, that's when you leave your teens. Now, David has left his royal gig. Remind you, David has been showing up at the, at the king's house, at the palace, to play music, to soothe his tormented soul. And now Saul is there. And I remind you, he had entered into the battlefield already tormented. Boy, that is a really bad state to be in when you're about to fight a battle, isn't it? He is already tormented. And do you know why he's tormented? Because he's running from God. God will never want you happy running from him. Why would he want that? You were created to be with him. Why would he want you happy running from him? And because Saul is unrepentant and unwilling to change, that puts him in a very precarious place. So, Saul, at this point, now he's running from God, he's tormented in his own soul, and probably a bit paranoid, looking around to find out who the better guy is going to be. Goliath steps out, and all of a sudden, everybody's freaking out. Saul is definitely leading them in that. Verse 16, David now, we read in verse 15, David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days. You're probably familiar. 40 is a number of trial and of preparation. This is the reign with Noah. It was the years with the wilderness with Moses. It was the temptation with Jesus for 40 days. And of course, you're probably familiar with the fact that even pregnancy is 40 weeks. And it says he presented himself for 40 days, morning and evening. And then, yes, he said to his son, beloved David, now take for your brothers an ephah of dried grain. An ephah, by the way, is 10 homers. Uh, if, then in a simplest sense, that's roughly between 21 and 22 liters, if they kept you with that. Uh, so 10, if you will, 10 homers uh, of this, and he says, of uh, dried grain, these 10 loaves, run them to your brothers at the camp and carry these 10 cheeses to the camp of their thousand, the captain of their thousand, and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. So dad's like, can you check up on your older brothers, please? Bring some food so he doesn't look like you're just checking up. Bring some dried grain, some bread, some cheese, which tells us that obviously that means that someone there was French. Just kidding, because there's, you know, cheese and, cheese and bread. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines, which tells us that even though nobody wants to fight Goliath, they're still fighting, which tells us even though you won't take on the big guy, you're still going to fight. Now, I don't know what your giant is or giants are. I don't know what it is in your life that is so big you just think this will never change. Lust, pornography, emotional weakness, your past, some mistake you've made you can't get past. I don't know what it is, but I'm here to let you know that God wants to take that giant down tonight. I'm here to let you know that God is the giant slayer. And though that thing looks huge to you, he is nothing compared to the infinite God. David arose in the morning. He left the sheep with the keeper. He took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. He was obeying his father. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to fight and shouting for battle. And Israelites had drawn, Israel had drawn, and the Philistines had drawn up in the battle, a battle array, army against army. 
David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, appropriate, ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then, as he talked with them, there was the champion, and notice that's his name given, which tells us he was undefeated. And you know that because when you lose, how do you know when a, when a warrior loses? He dies. So he, he doesn't have a second chance. You, you have to be undefeated or you're dead. It's pretty, the stakes are high. So there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name. And I remind you, look at what God's bringing up again. The press, the pressure, and of course the defamer. Coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words, David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Now they're telling this to David. Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches and give him his daughter and give him his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Now, now notice here, by the way, we're going to see a very big difference between Saul's incentives and Dave's motivation. Saul's incentives is what does it take for a guy to fight this guy? Now, notice he doesn't even care at this point. He just wants anyone that can take the guy down. So he's looking around at his warriors. Nobody is clearly volunteering. And he says, here's what I, I'm going to sweeten the deal. How about I give you lots of money? Still nobody's showing up. How about I give you your daughter? And one of my daughters. Now, now sooner or later we're going to find out his first daughter we don't know that much about. His second daughter, she's no prize. Now maybe he thought, you know, to be honest, it's going to have to take someone that can kill a giant to actually put up with this girl. Now, I don't know that. But we do know this. That, you know, it's like, here yeah, you can have the daughter. I'll cut the, does that sweeten the deal? But then the whole taxes thing. Now, where we live, that's 40% of your income. Uh, for taxes, that would be a really big deal. But that's where Saul's, in other words, Saul, what Saul's using to sweeten the deal is finance. He's, he's offering some, a chunk of cash one way or another and some kind of love interest. There's his hope. Now, David, on the other hand, notice his response in verse 26. I remind you, David is a man after God's own heart. Saul is a man with a great calling, but no consecration. And David spoke to the men who stood by him, and he said, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Do you see the difference? David seems more driven by a heart to see honor restored to God's people. And he looks and he goes, What is this? We're, we're God's people. Why is there no one fighting this jerk? Come on, for goodness sakes, look at this guy. And, and that's what they're saying. Look at how picky he's. And David's like, but who cares? Don't you realize he's here to shame every person who calls on the name of God? Who here is concerned about the honor of God's people? And we do. You know what's interesting? These days, it's the Christians who kick fallen Christians. Watch a guy go down and watch who starts blogging on him. It's some guy that calls himself a Christian. Now, I can't tell you who he is. Oh, you know, see, look at that. Another stupid hypocrite, you know. I don't go to church. I'm a real Christian. I don't go to church, but I never. You know what? I'm not a hypocrite because I just do everything wrong. I just don't say it's wrong. What is that? Is there a part of us that says, you know what? It is time we start taking back what it means to be a Christian. So when someone says, are you religious? Let's stop lying. We are religious. Now, in their eyes, perhaps what that means is some cocktail between tradition and politics. But if we're going to be honest, what it really means is devoted. And for that purpose, I want to say, yes, I am religious. 
I want to show you what a real Christian looks like. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to be perfect, but I want to tell you what, I'm going to be in hot pursuit of God, and you're welcome to observe. And you're going to welcome to see me when I fall on my face, cry out to God and ask him for forgiveness because he still forgives. Now, that's not a license to sin, but it sure is a cause to know where to go when you do. And we're quiet and we're letting the enemy, every place we move our foot away because we're afraid of stepping on someone's toes, the enemy just steps there and says, that's my ground now. And we're quiet. And you know, somewhere down the line here in this country, and I want you to know, America's just 10 years behind you, us, is that we said to the world, what do you want us to be? If you really want us to engage with you, and we use these cute little yuppie terms, you know, if you want us to engage with you, what do you want us to be? And in the essence, what they're saying is we want you irrelevant, inconsequential, and impotent. If we can tuck you into a corner somewhere and observe like a relic in a museum, if we can put you in the British Museum somewhere in between, you know, the sort of the, uh, the Assyrian walls and the Greek, you know, sort of the Greek statues, that's cool with us because we can observe and go, oh, yeah, remember when that was something of our country? And that's okay with us because because we can't touch it anyways. But, but don't do anything on our streets and don't try to preach in our workplace and don't you dare tell somebody that Jesus is the only way because that's hate speech. You know? And don't you dare. And you realize what they're saying. This somewhere down the way went, okay, well, if that's the way the dance has to be played, you lead. But show me in Scripture where that's the way we're supposed to be. And we're like, yeah, but then what we are is we're cocky. And what we are is we're, we're not listening. No, listen, what we want to do is listen to Jesus first, don't we? Why in the world would the world that is under the sway of the wicked one, why would the world tell us what we really want is this is how you preach to us. This is how you convert us. This is how you change us. Because they don't want to change So, like, you know what you could do? You could clothe people because then I don't feel so bad because they're not on the streets. And you can feed people and that'll make you nice. But none of that has to involve Jesus. And that was exactly what the religious leaders told Peter and John, didn't they? They said, look, you can do whatever you want. Just lay off of the name of Jesus Christ and we're going to be okay. And they said, you know, we cannot but proclaim the things we've seen and heard. No matter what you're going to say, you can't stop us. And David here, a man after God's own heart, looks and goes, aren't you just sick of... Now, we're not talking about people making fun of you because they're going to hell. We're talking about people making fun of you because we've earned it. Because somewhere down the line, we're so cowardly. I mean, let's face it. If we really, want to, if we really believe Jesus is the only way, then we should, and we tell people we love them, we better tell them. One of the gals that was on our fellowship in California, I remember, you know, she had a piano teacher... And he said, let me ask you something. Do you really believe Jesus is the only way? And she said, yes. And do you really believe that God loves people? Yes. And he goes, well, then how in the world have you, why haven't you told me? And he was an atheist. He just couldn't, in his own head, reconcile that information with her calling herself a Christian. And I understand why. So the people answered him in the manner said, so shall this be done for him who kills him, the man who kills Goliath. Verse 27, verse 28. Eliab, the oldest brother, heard, and this just sounds like older brothers, doesn't it? He spoke to the man. He heard David asking this. And Eliab's anger was, arose against, uh, was aroused against David. This just in. And he said, why did you go down? Why did you come down here? And whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know the pride and insolence of your heart. You've, not, you've come here to see the battle. And understand, I remind you, when David was anointed, he was anointed in front of his brothers who had all been rejected to get to David. So you can imagine there was a bit of, there's some bad blood there. They've got bad blood. 
And David said, what have I done now? Isn't there a cause? Now understand, David's like, this isn't just like, why are you, why are you getting in my face? Isn't there a reason for me to be asking this? Why aren't you asking this? Why am I the only one that's troubled over this? But he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And the people answered him at the first that David heard the same story. Now, when the words of David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, who sent for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail. Probably let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. Saul is so desperate. At least it's someone. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're a youth. And he's a man of war from his youth. Now, the word youth, one of my last terms here, we're rounding this corner for the last of this. Can you say na'ar? Na'ar is the word in the Hebrew. Na'ar, the word, means it's, it's a person from toddler to adolescence. The oldest you can be as a teenager to be a youth. Saul looks at him and says, you're a kid. That's how we might say it. And he goes, in this Goliath, old hulky back here, when he was your age, he was beating people up. I mean, when he was your age, he was twice, he was eight times your size at your age. Saul, now notice what David does. I mean, he's saying, you've been a, he, this guy's been a soldier longer than you've been alive. And David says then, and what he does is he recalls God's previous victories as precedent. Don't miss this. When you face a battle where something seems so huge, review the, times, review the giants God's already slayed. Because if you forget the giants that have already fallen, you forget who the giant slayer is. And you forget that he lives inside of you. Now we read the verse, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But we forget it. So David says this all in verse 34, your servant used to keep his father's sheep and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth and when it rose up against me, I caught it by the beard and struck it and killed it. Wouldn't that be cool to watch? Your servant, of course, there'd be you know, animal rights groups that go mental over it. Your, your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Who is this Philistine? This Philistine is nothing compared to the bear. I mean, he just kind of looks kind of like a bear, looks kind of like a lion. I've already, I've already seen God drop those. Saul said to David, all right, go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David in his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword in his armor, and he tried to walk. He hadn't tested. Remember, I mind you, Saul is roughly about 75% more, you know, beyond David's height. Add 75% of, 75% of David and add that to him. It's about the height of, of uh, Saul. So he's putting on this giant stuff. David fastened, and then he says, and he he tried to walk, but he hadn't tested. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk in with these. I haven't tested them. And David took them off. Now listen, listen, listen. You cannot fight the giant in another man's weaponry. And of course, we're familiar with Ephesians 6. I know you guys are. The breastplate of righteousness, you know, having girded your waist with the truth, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, your shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. Now, we recognize that, which is the Word of God. But the problem is, I can't fight the giants in my life with your faith. And I can't fight it with the salvation you possess. 
I can't fight it with the scriptures just that just because you quoted it or because I quote the way that you said something. Well, you can't do it and say, well, Pastor Tony says, man, you've got to have your own sword and it's got to fit in your hand and you've got to be able to swing it right. And better yet, you've got to be able to use the, the best part about a sword is take the pokey part and shove it. And that's the part, the part about Scripture sometimes is realize the sword of the Spirit, if it really is the Word of God here, as it tells us, well, understand, there's got to be a point to it, and you don't just wave it indiscriminately. This isn't a broad sword. This is a makaira. This is a small you know, sword that is roughly six inches. And the idea of it is this is a defensive weapon. You don't swing a broad sword here. This is the one, if it gets past that shield of faith, this thing's going in. And I go, but my dad had great faith, or but my friends have great faith, or my church seems to have great faith, or whatever. Listen, if you're going to see the giant fall, it is time for you to grab your sword and your shield and your helmet and gird yourself and put on your shoes, because my shoes aren't going to fit you. And David looks at me and he goes, I can't do this. This isn't my weaponry. And what's interesting is, is the gifts and the strengths that God has given you, he may not have given me. And the great thing is when you use your strengths the giants in your life fall. So he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones in the brook. And I remind you again, for what it's worth, Goliath did have four brothers. We'll see them by Second Samuel. And it's just foreshadowing, if you will, or you can argue over the point that five of them speaks like the Torah. But anyways, he put them in a shepherd's bag and in a pouch in which he had and a sling in his hand and he drew near the Philistine. The Philistine came and, began, and drew near to David and the man who bore the shield went before him. Now, interesting, David doesn't seem to have a shield bearer. Did you notice that? Now, I don't know exactly what the shield bearer is going to protect on, David, on, uh, on Goliath. How big do you think he is? Do you think he's just basically carrying a piece of wall with him? Now, notice, by the way, David charges after him. David, in this fight, is in faith, is going to go. He's going to go forward. He's not just going to wait for this Goliath to come at him. David's going at him. Now, for what it's worth... And our last thing is we start bringing this around the cloak. This is a replica of a 3,000-year-old slingshot. This is what they look like. They're nothing really fancy. There's no Y thing with a cute little spring on it. This is what it looks like. And the way you would do it is you'd wrap one side around your hand. You'd take the other hand and right foot around the finger. And you'd swing it around like this. And you'd let go with the one finger, and it would fly off. Now, we tell it there are men there that are Benjamites that actually can hit at a, at a hair's glance. I mean, some guys were dead eyes at this. But now you heard the swing on that. Now, it seems like a ridiculous thing unless you're actually fighting someone Hugo size. But the idea of shooting a rock into this at a guy like that, at the Hulk, seems to make it seem like it'll just bounce off of him and it'll, it won't even irritate him. He, it'll seem like a fly landed on him. But understand something here. What David is expecting is that the battle belongs to God. And he's going to tell us that here in a moment. He's not expecting the rock to do the job. He's expecting God to do the job. He's only taking what he knows and using it. Hear me on that. The horse is prepared for, for battle, but the victory is from the Lord. And sometimes we're like, God, fight the battle. And God's like, yes, but I want you in the battle because I want you to have the, the brilliance of the victory. And I want you to smell that victory when we're there. Don't just watch it at a distance. There are times where God will have us sit at the cliff and watch him fight the battle. And there are other times where he'll bring us in it. The victory will still be his, but he'll want us doing something in it. 
I mean, there are guys that are struggling with pornography, but they won't even put a filter on their, on their Internet. And they're just waiting for God to step in. There are people that have a problem with, you know, that they're in a relationship and it's completely full of sexual sin, but they won't even break up. But they're just waiting for God to step in. Maybe God stepped in by saying, get out of this thing. Cut off that hand or foot or eye and, and flee. Cast it from you. In this situation now, David sees him and what he knows as a shepherd is this is how a lion goes down. This is how a bear goes down. And I'm going for it. The Philistine looked and he saw David in verse 42 and he disdained him. He completely contempted him. Bazaz, the word bazaar, you get the idea. He was, a, and it says, because he was a youth. There's our word. And by the way, notice God now is telling us, not just Saul. God's telling us he was a youth. Same word, by the way, na'ar. He was somebody at best a teen, ruddy and good looking. In essence, what David was, was everything that Goliath wasn't. So the Philistine, of course, tries to taunt. He says to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And notice, by the way, you know that whole sticks and stones can break your bones? Well, that's what David has. He has a stick and some stones. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now, David could have spent all his time surmising Goliath, and he could have spent all his time listening to Goliath. The Philistine said to David, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come at me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, which tells me that David does know the weaponry of the enemy here. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. And this is why of the earth, that the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. At that point, I'm pretty confident that David could have flung a marshmallow and saw and uh, Goliath would have gone down because you could just see God looking and going, that's my boy. That's what I'm looking for. Somebody that says, I'm going to go there and I'm going to let and I'm going to give God the glory. And because God's the one that's going to fight this battle, because this is about him anyways. This is all about him and his honor and the honor of his people. You're going down because there's no way God's going to let me get let me lose this one. You can just see God going, yes. Yes. And what about you? Could you see God this way? You say, you know what? I really want a heart for the honor of God, for the honor of his name, and for the honor of his people. So what was when the Philistine drew near, arose, came and drew near to meet David, that David hastened and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. He is not running away. He's running to him. And his faith has legs that run to the battle. Then David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, apparently while he's running, and he slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead so that it's, the stone sank into his forehead and he fell into his face, went to the earth. David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Prevailed means he won over him, struck the Philistine and killed him. Struck him with what? We'll see in a moment. There was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran over, stood over the Philistine, took his own sword, drew it out of his sheath and killed him, cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. David did not kill Goliath with a stone. 
David killed Goliath with Goliath's sword. David knocked him down with the stone and took him out with his sword. That's how that worked. Now, it didn't matter. If God wanted, David could have gone, and the guy could have exploded. But God actually wanted to give David the pleasure of actually seeing the giant fall at his hand. And the Lord will do that with you sometimes. Because he really loves it when you're like, God, thank you. So, this is how it ends. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted, pursued the Philistines. And by the way, I'm assuming the sword we're talking about here is the smaller one, but a smaller sword for Goliath is probably a full-size broadsword for David. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley into the gates of Ekron and wounded the Philistines the wounded and the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road of Sha'arim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. whoop de doo right? Well, let me give you an idea. That is roughly 11 miles is Ekron. Gath is 17 miles away. Now, put that into perspective. From where we are here, that is um, Hemel Hempstead. I mean, just to give you an idea. I mean, because High Barnet is 11 miles from here. So... That means that when the Goliath fell, Israel became so invigorated by seeing that giant fall. And this is what happens when God falls a giant in your life. The people that know him around you. Remember, that's what David said, that this assembly would know. They get invigorated and they're like, you know what? It is time to watch God start drop giants. And the next thing you know, we're chasing them. Imagine having in your hand a sword or some, and remember, most of them didn't have anything of this sort because the Philistines were the only ones allowing metallurgy. So you were chasing them with like a club, and you're chasing them all the way from here, all the way through High Barnet by foot. Oh, I tell you, what kind of a battle is that? And then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines. They plundered their tents. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, put the armor in his tent. David just, he still got the head in his hand. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to him in our last four verses, he said to his commander, Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this youth? Now, you would think at this point that he would go, isn't this my little rock star guy that's been giving me, you know, cooling me off? Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I don't, I do not know. So the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner brought him, uh, took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. David hasn't let go of the head of the... Maybe he's like, the Philistines are coming, he's like, hey, 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 and that just freaks him out, and then he just starts killing him and slinging him down, you know? Uh, that would do it. If you're going to psych a guy out, a giant head like that in your hand, that, that would do it for me. I get it. So, what he, he took him, brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. This is how it ends. Now, that sounds warm and fuzzy, but I want to remind you of something as we go to prayer. Saul knows someone's going to replace him. And why would he ask who his dad is? Because what he has to find out is what tribe is he from? Because if he was from the tribe, for instance, of Asher or Naphtali, he wouldn't be a neighbor of his. I remind you. God had already said he's going to be a neighbor that's going to replace you. So he's going to be a, Jew, he's going to be a Judean. By the way, you're probably familiar. Judean shortened is where we get the term Jew from. 
Well, with that in mind, he's like, so what family are you from? What tribe are you from? Where are you from? He's like, oh, I'm from Bethlehem. And you can see the, this wheel spinning. And, and, and again, I remind you, he's a 15-year-old kid. And here you are, this giant among smaller people, nothing compared to Goliath. Do you look and go, no, couldn't be this guy, could it? He's a kid. This guy better than me is a kid? This guy better than me is... And then he starts... Imagine the songs that David would play that would soothe him. Imagine at this moment the, the cries that David said, hey, and it was, it was to Saul that he said, hey, God delivered me from that lion and that bear, and the God who delivered me from those things, he'll deliver me from this, because somebody has to be concerned about the honor of his people. And you can see David's not saying it, but I wonder if Saul's hearing, you know, you should be. And this better than him, that's after God's own heart, how could he look more? Who could look more after God's own heart than this kid in front of him? And here's the point. In your life and in my life, there's a throne in your heart. And that throne in your heart, you will never sit on, though you may think you could. The enemy would love for you to think it's you who sits on the throne. But truth be told, if you serve yourself, he's the one sitting there making you do that, telling you that. And the moment you say yes to Jesus as Savior, he demands to be your Lord. In other words, he demands to take that seat. And you don't want to give it up. I don't want to give it up. And just like the horrible tragedy of Saul, that could be us not willing to step off the throne and let Jesus have his proper place on the throne of my heart, throne of yours. You know what happens? At a moment like that, we say, God, can't you just make my life nice? Can you just make it so that I never have to see another giant? And God will put you in situation of giant after giant after giant until you get off and let God really take the throne he deserves. So tonight as we go to prayer, I don't know. What battle there is in your life that looks like a giant. What it is that seems like it's just so huge. But tonight, it's time for him to drop it. To drop that giant. And why not? You see, but I've cried out before. I've asked God before. Perhaps. But how about tonight? Would it be worth asking? Would it be saying, Lord, this thing is taunting me. It is seeking to take away the honor you deserve. But it is time tonight for you to take this thing down. Will you pray with me? God in heaven, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. And I want to thank you, Lord, for what you've spoken here tonight. I certainly needed to hear it. And I want to thank you, Lord, for the pleasure of being able to serve you another day. I don't deserve any of that. And I want to thank you for being a God who so loved me that the greatest giant that I could face, the guilt of, the, of my own sin when I stand before you, that you took that giant down by sending Jesus to clothe himself in flesh, be a human being, walk on this planet, be tempted in every way, yet be without sin, and then die on the cross so that all of my guilt could be punished. And then just like Scripture promised, he was buried and on the third day rose again to offer me a brand new life, not just as my Savior, but as my Lord. And tonight I recognize that there is no confidence in just saying, Jesus, you're my Savior, that's cool.
but rather the confidence is in your lordship, Jesus. And tonight I ask for you to take, because I realize the greatest thing that needs to fall is me, is my self-reliance, is my own selfish pride, is my egocentrism where the world revolves around me. And I just pray tonight that, that, that I could clearly and freely abrogate the throne of my heart and say, Jesus, don't just have a seat there. Make yourself at home there and permanently reside there. In every giant, Lord, that, is re- that remains to fall, I know you will drop them. I know you will drop them because it's your battle. But I recognize there are times where you may call me into the field, even though you're going to be the one to take them down. There's no way a stone's going to drop a guy like that unless you take that stone. So, Lord, but you may help me fling it. So give me the courage and the legs to run to the battle where you call me to the battle. And in that, Lord, I pray that tonight, as I declare you the Lord of my life, do greater work than you've ever done in my life. And maybe I truly expect it. Because you're a God that is worthy, worthy of all of that praise and honor and glory. And you are, an, you are the undefeated heavyweight champion of the universe. There is no giant that can stand before you. And this world itself is just a dot that is already earmarked for destruction. And anything on this planet that is temporary, it just doesn't stand before you. So tonight, reinvigorate my faith. And tonight, Lord, I give you whatever giants there are before me, drop them, Lord, as you take the throne. Lord, I'm not going to put the crown on me. It is on you, Jesus. Take the throne now and drop the giants. And may I walk out of here victorious, head in hand. And I recognize even in doing that, that may cause friction and there may cause enemies and others. But let me not fear that, but rather for the honor of your name and for the honor of your people. Give me the, 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 the bravery, the courage that is necessary to step up and not see these things claim territory that belongs to you. So tonight, here I am and I say I'm yours. Have us now, God, please take the throne. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. So, Lord, now work on our hearts. Give us the faith to expect you to do great things and walk us out of here tonight victorious. In Jesus' name. Amen.